uh, praise God for the power of the gospel. Amen? So powerful that God can even save twins at the same time and have them baptized at the same time. It's, uh, what a joy, honestly, to rejoice in the power of the gospel and just to see the evidence of the gospel at work. In fact, I want to talk to you specifically tonight about the power of the gospel. I want to do so from Romans chapter 1. So you can take your Bibles and turn there. Romans chapter 1. We're going to be looking at two verses. Two, I I would argue, the most powerful verses in all of the Bible. Paul's words in Romans 1, verse 16 and 17. Paul writes these words. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray together. Father, we rejoice, God, in what we have just witnessed Uh, We have seen, God, in just these past few moments, the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ that can take uh, two men who are dead in their trespasses and sin and make them alive in Jesus Christ. Father, we rejoice in the power of the gospel. And Father, we pray now that as we look at your word, that the power of the gospel would... God, be invigorating to us, that it would fill us, God, with great joy, that would provide for us great comfort in these moments. Lord, we pray that the power of the gospel would fuel our passion for Jesus Christ this evening. We pray, God, that as we look at your word, our hearts would be wide open to you, that you would speak in a mighty and powerful way to us about the power of the gospel. And Father, we pray that we would be transformed even this evening. God, even those of us who have experienced the power of the gospel to save us, Lord, would you sanctify us by the power of the gospel this evening? Would you transform us? Would you make us look more and more like our Savior, Jesus Christ? It's in his precious and powerful name we pray. Amen. Paul writes these words to the church in Rome. It's a church he's never visited. It was a church he didn't plant. But it's a church that he longed to visit. And here, these two verses that we've already read and actually prayed for ourselves, these two verses are really Paul's thesis statement for the entire book of Romans. He's going to spend the rest of the book of Romans unpacking these two verses, the power of the gospel, the beauty of the gospel. And so we have really here in summary form the entire argument of the book of Romans. It is the very heart of the book of Romans. It is the heart of Paul. It is Paul's greatest motivation as a follower of Jesus Christ. In fact, if we look back at the verse just before this, verse 15, Paul is is writing to the church. He's writing to believers in Rome. And listen to what he says to them in verse 15. So I am eager, he says, to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. There is in the heart of Paul this steady passion for Jesus, this eagerness when it comes to the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But here, what we hear him say to us is so fascinating. He launches from this statement that he's eager to come and preach the gospel by saying that he is not ashamed of the gospel. What fascinating words. John Stott, the famous pastor, preacher, 
and author, he recounts a, a comment made by a Scottish theologian by the name of James Stewart concerning this very passage. And here's what this, this man said. He said, there's no sense in declaring that you're not ashamed of something unless you've been tempted to feel ashamed of it. And isn't that so helpful for us this evening who are followers of Jesus Christ? Because if we're honest with ourselves, every one of us has been at the very least tempted to feel ashamed of the gospel, if not fallen prey to that temptation and actually been ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I would argue that we are living in such a unique time. There's a lot of pressure being put upon Christians and followers of Jesus Christ There is a massive cultural shifts taking place all around us, increasing secularization and opposition to followers of Jesus Christ and to the church of Jesus Christ. I would argue that we're living in a time, listen, where it can be very easy to feel ashamed of the gospel. Maybe that shame looks different. Maybe it's fear-based. Maybe it's this desire to simply stay silent, to not speak up when we know we should to not tell people what we know to be true. And it's fascinating because when we think of the Apostle Paul, Paul often seems like this invincible, superhuman Christian, doesn't he? And yet, we hear him say that maybe he too felt ashamed of the gospel or he was tempted to feel ashamed. It's interesting, when you look through the New Testament, Jesus anticipated that his followers might one day be ashamed to identify with him. In fact, in Mark 8, verse 38, he says this, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. We know the testimony of the apostle Peter. He confirmed that the prediction of Jesus would be true in his own life. He denied Jesus three times in one evening. Even Paul himself confessed to arriving in the city of Corinth in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And yet, at the same time, Paul in truth was never truly ashamed of his Savior. In fact, his life is a legacy of declaring this Savior, of being unashamed of Jesus Christ. He preached the gospel to everyone, regardless of their title, regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of their religious background, their socioeconomic condition. It didn't matter to him. Paul was beaten and stoned and imprisoned for the gospel of Jesus Christ. He went from town to town and village to village and person to person. It's amazing, in Acts chapter 26, by the way, Paul longed to get to Rome. He would get there in a very unconventional way. He would get there as a prisoner. As he was on trial, he stood before King Agrippa. And in Acts chapter 26, we have the account of Paul proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ with such boldness and courage. He declared his own testimony of God's saving grace in his own life. And when he was finished, consider this, he was accused of being out of his mind. They looked at him and said, Paul, you're crazy for believing this, for saying these things. And in a moment where Paul might have been inclined to feel ashamed of the gospel... 
Agrippa says these words to Paul. In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And here you have the heart of Paul right here. Listen to this boldness. Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these changes. Not ashamed. He knew that the message of the cross was foolishness to some, and it was a stumbling block to others. Because it undermines self-righteousness and it challenges our self-indulgence. So just understand this, loved ones. Listen, whenever the gospel is faithfully preached, it will arouse opposition. It will often bring contempt. And sometimes it will even bring ridicule, persecution. And in many places in the world, people will lose their lives for it. So how then did Paul, and, and how shall we overcome this temptation to be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, Paul tells us here, really he gives us two ways that we can anchor ourselves in grow in our unashamed approach to the gospel. Notice this, we are not ashamed of the gospel first because there is no greater power. There's no greater power. Paul wants to anchor our hearts in this theology of the gospel, the power of the gospel. He wants us to ground ourselves there. Anyone who has sat for any length of time in in a church has likely heard that the word for power that Paul uses here in verse 16 is the Greek word dunamis, which is where we get the English word dynamite from. It paints for us this, this little picture, doesn't it? The understanding of dynamite, this image of incredible power that's packed into this seemingly small package, in a sense that helps us understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. It looks so small, it looks so inconsequential, and yet it is packed so densely with immense power and strength. The explosive power of dynamite, by the way, is actually an inadequate illustration of the power of the gospel. Because there is nothing that can be compared with the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Paul says, I'm not ashamed of this good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, because there is no greater power in all of the universe. And in fact, from this single verse, this verse is almost like a stick of dynamite in itself because it is jam-packed with an understanding of what this power looks like. I want to break it down for us in four ways. Notice this first, that gospel power is singular. It is singular. Notice what he says here in verse 16. Look at it with me. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is, listen, the power. You see, a stick of dynamite is a power, but the gospel is the power. When we talk of power, We can speak of it in a a number of ways, but one of the ways we speak of power is how we measure power. And different types of power are actually measured in different ways. For example, we measure the power of an engine, for example, in horsepower. We measure the power of electricity in watts. Or we measure the explosion of TNT, of dynamite, in joules, J-O-U-L-E-S. But I want you to think about how we measure the power of the gospel because the word of God actually speaks to this. Listen to what Paul writes in Ephesians 1 verse 19. He says this, he says about the gospel, is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. 
Don't you love that? When you think about the gospel power, he tells us here that it is immeasurable. It cannot be compared to anything else. You see, while dynamite has the power to level rocks and buildings, the power of the gospel is far greater than that. It has the power to level the human heart. It has the power to level human rebellion against God. It has the power to level sin in its entirety. There is no other power that can do what it can do. It is singular in nature. Nothing else is needed. Nothing else can be added. In fact, if you were to add anything to the gospel, if you believed that, that you needed to add something to the gospel, it wouldn't simply dis- dilute the gospel power. It would actually destroy the gospel power. It would eradicate it. To add anything to the gospel strips it of its power. The gospel is enough on its own. Gospel power is singular, but why is that exactly? Why is it so singular? That's because secondly, notice this, gospel power is supreme. Look at what Paul says in verse 16 as he describes this power. He says, for it is the power of God. The gospel doesn't simply contain the power of God. Catch it, did you see this there? The gospel is the power of God. It's immeasurable, in other words, because God himself is immeasurable. It is an infinite power because God himself is infinite in character and nature. I love, by the way, listening to young kids describe or try to wrap their mind around God. If you're a parent, you've likely had this experience with your kids. I've got, a, I've got three kids, and everyone has gone through this phase. My youngest is five, and he's in this phase now, where they're trying to wrap their little minds around the, the infinite nature of God. So, you know, you, you try to explain to them uh, who God is, and the first question they go to is like, well, how big is God, right? How big is God, Dad? And, and what they do in their little minds is they try to compare the size of God to things that are big in their life, right? And in their surroundings. So, so my son says to me not long ago, he says, so Dad, is, is like God like as big as a truck? I'm like, well, he's definitely bigger than a truck. He's like, okay, well, is God as big as our house? I'm like, son, yes, he's definitely bigger than our house. Yeah. Is he as big as the world? Or they, they measure the strength of God. My, my, my boys especially, trying to figure out how, how, how strong is God, Dad? Like is, is, God like, is God as strong as like a bulldozer? Like, yeah, he's, he's stronger than a bulldozer. Is God as strong as a dinosaur? This is what they do, right? And this is the best. This really blows their mind. God is Dad, or sorry, is God stronger than you, Dad? Like, like his mind's blown instantly, I'm glad they, they think, they, they lead me to the end, which makes me think, they think I'm actually stronger than a dinosaur and a bulldozer. So it's a really good confidence boost in my own life. But, you know, Christians like to think of God as their superhero. You know what I mean by that? Like, they think of God as, he's kind of like us, but he's got superpowers. But that is a terribly unbiblical portrayal of God's infinite nature. He is not a God who simply possesses our powers, but in endless measure. He is an infinite God who transcends our characteristics altogether. His power is like nothing we can fully comprehend. But the scriptures repeatedly talk to us about the power of God. Listen to what First Chronicles 29, 11, and 12 say. 
They say, yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. And you are exalted as head above it all. Both riches and honor come from you and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might. And in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. Psalm 21, 13 says, Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. One of my favorite Psalms, Psalm 63, verse 2 says, So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. See, every superhero has a weakness, don't they? They've all got their kryptonite, they've all got their Achilles heel. But God's power is invincible because God himself is invincible. There is no glimpse of weakness. There is only strength and power. God's power is an infinite power, which is why we call him omnipotent, all-powerful. The potency, the power of the gospel is none other than the supreme power of God. You say, for what? Well, you see, gospel powers, thirdly, saving. This power has a purpose. It has an intention and a direction. It is the power for salvation, Paul says to us here in verse 16. Karl Marx once wrote that religion, he said, is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of a heartless world, and the soul of soulless conditions. It is the opium of the people. He must have been a fun guy to be around. You know what he's saying there? He's saying, he's saying like, listen, people, people lean into religion because it, it just helps them. It, it's some figment of their imagination. It's some kind of fantasy that allows them to just simply get through the pain and the struggle of this life. It's like a crutch. You ever heard that before? People like to, like to kind of accuse Christianity of being a crutch, to which I quickly respond that it is not a crutch. It's far worse than that. Christianity is more like a defibrillator. Okay? That's, that's what Christianity is because it's not simply about healing sick people. It's about bringing dead people to life. Paul doesn't hand us a crutch for our mortal wounds. The gospel is the means by which God frees sinners from bondage and he raises from death in sin to life in Christ. This is the power of the gospel. The same power, by the way, that brought the world into existence. The very same power whereby which God spoke and there was light and there was life is the same power that is actively at work in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen to what Paul says. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Only the power of the gospel could open blind eyes, could awaken dead sinners, and to give new life. The gospel brings the transformative power of God to bear on the lives of sinners. The gospel is the power of God to confront us in our sin, to convict us of our sin, to convert us from our sin, and to comfort us with the forgiveness of sin. 
Salvation is spiritual deliverance from the penalty of sin, from the power of sin, and one day from the very presence of sin itself. Lastly, notice this. Gospel power is sufficient. It is absolutely sufficient. Did you notice how Paul says this to us in verse 16? He says, for it is the power of God for salvation to someone who believes. No. No, no. He, he looks at it and he says, this is the power of God to everyone who believes. That There's nobody who can be excluded from this. Everybody is invited to come to Jesus, to come and receive the salvation for their souls that only he can provide. You see, this is a universal offer that's given to the world. Come, come and receive forgiveness of sins. In 1 Corinthians 1, 18, Paul said this, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. In verse 24, he says, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. John Murray, he wrote this, he said, there is no discrimination arising from race or culture And there is no obstacle arising from the degradations of sin. You know what he's saying here? You know what Paul is saying to us? He's saying it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter what you've done. I can't tell you how many times I've had conversations with people who are unbelievers, who they hear about the gospel, and to them it's like, this sounds too good to be true. And they'll look at me, and they'll look at me in the eyes, sometimes with tears in their eyes, and they'll say things like, Ian, he's like, this sounds really good, but you have no idea what I've done. You have no idea the damage I've done with my sin. You have no idea how long sin's had a grip on my life. You have no idea the depths of depravity that I have lived in. You have no idea, and there's no way, if God knows this, there's no way I can be saved. To which I reply, listen, there is nothing you've done that can take you away from the grace of God. Your sin is great, but God's grace is greater still. The power of the gospel is the power to rescue anyone who comes to him. It doesn't matter what you've done. And that's such good news for you and for me, isn't it? And for the entire world. Hear me out on this. Listen, that means this, that there is no person too far gone. There's no obstacle too great. There's no sin that's too deep. There's no condition that's too severe. There's no background that's too broken. There's no heart that's too dark. There's no despair that's too overwhelming. There's no worldly or satanic grip that's too strong. And we are not ashamed of the gospel for it and it alone is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. His power alone is sufficient. Paul says to the Jews first and then to the Greeks. Paul simply means by that, this is the historic precedent. This isn't a matter of preferential treatment. This is the historic precedent. The gospel came through the Jews, and it came first to the Jews, and then it came to the entire world. The gospel, in other words, again, is for everyone. There's no greater power. Second, we're not ashamed of the gospel because there's no greater promise. There's no greater promise than the promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You say, well, well, what promise exactly is that? Look at verse 17. He says, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. You see, the promise is seen in understanding this term, the righteousness of God. 
The righteousness of God can be understood in a number of different ways. But what Paul wants to make clear here is this. Listen, that to possess the righteousness of God is to be saved. Let me say it in reverse. To be saved is to possess the righteousness of God. So what exactly does this phrase mean? Well, it can mean several things. Let me frame it for you like this. Righteousness can be understood as a divine attribute. If you look throughout the pages of Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, you see the righteousness of God as a divine attribute. God's faithfulness to his promises, to his covenant, God's justice and equity. But it's more than that. If you look through Scripture, you see that it's, secondly, a divine activity. God's righteousness, in other words, is described at times throughout Scripture, as his saving action or saving activity on behalf of his people, where God intervenes in their story and he comes to their aid and he rescues them. But third, and I think most important for what Paul is driving at here, it's a divine announcement. It is the declaration of the righteous status which God requires if we are to ever stand before him. One uh, theologian put it like this. It is the righteousness which his righteousness requires him to require. I like that. But you see, it's a righteousness which only he accomplishes through the atoning sacrifice of the cross. In which he announces in the gospel, which he reveals in the gospel, and then which he applies to those who believe. You say, what are you saying, Ian? I'm saying this. It's something that must be done for us and cannot be done by us. I'm saying that it's something that cannot be achieved. It is something that must be received. It needs to be understand, understood in this third sense, the sense of divine announcement, it is to be understood as a, as a declaration of a right standing with God. Theologians call this the forensic sense. And the idea here is that God is to be understood as the judge of the universe. He's the judge of the universe before whom every single one of us, every single human being on the face of the planet will one day stand and give an account for their life. And the hope on that day is to stand before the judge and hear the words, not guilty. That's what it means to be justified, to be declared righteous by God. It is to be declared not guilty. You can think of it like this, to possess the righteousness of God or to be justified, it's just as if I never sinned. That's what the gospel does, by the way. On the cross of Jesus Christ, Jesus hangs there, the Son of God, God incarnate, and he pays the penalty for our sins. He takes upon himself the just wrath of God the Father in place of us who deserve it. All of our sin, all of our guilt, all of our shame is thrust upon Jesus. It's given to him. And we're left standing just as if we've never sinned. Isn't that awesome? But, but I want to remind you that we need more than that. You see, justification is not just as if I've never sinned. It's also just as if I've always obeyed. 
Now just imagine that. It's kind of like this. Every one of us was, was, was bankrupt to the extreme. We had a debt to repay that we could never repay. And, and Jesus comes along and in the cross, he repays the debt. He wipes out that debt entirely on the cross so that it kind of brings us to even. But that's not what God requires. He's not just looking for a clean slate. And God doesn't say to us in this moment where our sins are taken away and forgiven, he doesn't say, okay, I've, I've cleaned you up. Now go out there and earn your righteousness. It's not what he does. And yet, what's required to stand before God in the end and to live with God for all of eternity is we must possess the righteousness of God that we can never accumulate for ourselves. So you see, what takes place is what's referred to as the great exchange. Jesus takes all of our sin, all of our shame. He pays the full price for our sin. And then he turns around and he gives to us all of his perfect righteousness. His perfect life is credited to our account. So we're not just with a level bank account showing zeros across the board. No, we're, we're topped up to the max, an infinite amount, amount deposited into our bank account so that we stand before God possessing, robed in the very righteousness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We have no righteousness of our own. To be righteous means that you are perfectly acceptable to God according to his perfect standard and that you are totally capable for maintaining that standard. So I have a little thought experiment. And some of you are like, well, maybe, maybe once we're saved, we've got a clean slate. Maybe I could be righteous enough then to, to kind of get into God's good graces. Well, let's just try this for a second. Let's just imagine in this moment that we gave you a clean slate. All of us are starting fresh, clean slate. How long do you think you could go without sinning? Let's, let's try this out, a little thought experiment. Let's put some legs to this, okay? I'm going to time you, okay? Let's see how long you can go, and go. Politics. Face masks. Kids. Money. So you're gone. You're already gone, right? <laughs> oh, man. I came here to be encouraged, and now I'm angry. You're like, well, Ian, you made me do that. You, you, if you didn't say those things, I would have been fine. I, I, could have, I could have gone a long time. Listen, friend, not long enough. Besides, I never made you do anything. Your heart made you do it. Because your heart's just like my heart. It's deceitful above all else. It's desperately sick. Every once in a while, I'll have people tell me, like, you know, when they're being pressed on issues of obedience in their life, you're like, you know what? I, God knows my heart. God knows my heart. And my response to that is always, yes, he does. So you better repent. You see, God in the gospel does not just wipe your slate clean. He credits the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. He imputes it to your account. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Philippians 3, verse 9, Paul says this, and to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, from obedience to the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. You say, how do I get this? How do I get this righteousness? You get it only by faith. You cannot achieve it. You cannot earn it. You cannot merit it. It comes only by believing upon Jesus Christ, by believing that his sacrifice was sufficient, that his perfect life is enough. 
And this is exactly what Paul says to us in verse 17, isn't it? For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Or from faith to faith. In other words, we'll never have a righteousness on our own. From first to last, from beginning to end, all of our salvation and all of our sanctification, it comes by faith in Jesus Christ. And then to drive this point home, he quotes the words from Habakkuk 2 verse 4. He says, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul has already quoted these very words in Galatians 3.11 to prove that it is not the law, by the law, that people are justified before God. It's quoted by the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 10.38 to encourage the readers of that epistle to press on and to not lose heart. The sense of this, is, this word here is steadfastness or fidelity. And in Habakkuk, in this passage here, this steadfastness or fidelity is based on a firm belief in God and his word. It is this firm belief that Paul understands by this term. See, God's statement to Habakkuk, if you go back and you read the book of Habakkuk, if you put this, this quotation in its original context, this statement was intended by God to be a, a statement of comfort and encouragement for Habakkuk. Habakkuk was a prophet, and he was at his wit's end. He, he prophesied during the times between the two exiles of the nation of Israel and Judah. So he'd already seen God's people living in sin and rebellion, and God had punished them through the Assyrians and dra- dragging them off into captivity. And now he knows that the people of God who are left in Judah are going to be dragged off because of their sin as well. God has revealed to him that another exile is coming from the Babylonians. And so Habakkuk is at his wit's end. He's looking around uh, at the people of God and all he sees, is their si- he sees is their sinfulness. These people are wicked and they're disobedient God. They don't want anything to do with you. They keep on shaking their fist at you. And then God says, don't worry, I'm gonna punish them by sending a more wicked nation. And Habakkuk is like, what are you talking about? This doesn't make sense, God. All of this doesn't make sense. I mean, like in our modern vernacular, what's the deal? And Habakkuk, he, he rails against God in a series of complaints in the first chapter. It, it might actually be said that Habakkuk was embarrassed, that he was ashamed of God's inaction and God's decisions and choices. But Habakkuk had received the divine assurance that wickedness, listen, in the end would not triumph indefinitely. God told Habakkuk, listen, the righteousness would ultimately be vindicated and the earth would one day, according to Habakkuk 2.14, be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in effect, God looks at this prophet and he says, listen, Habakkuk, this vision might be slow in being realized, but it would certainly be fulfilled. And God is saying to him, and he says to us, I'm not blind to the condition of my people. I will never forget my covenant promises to them. Meanwhile, the righteous would endure to the end, directing their lives by a loyalty to God that is inspired by faith in his promise. The righteous live by faith. They are given new life by faith, and they continue to live that life in faith. Regardless of how things look, regardless of the challenges they face, regardless of the circumstances they find themselves in. 
God says, listen, there is nothing you can do to fix the situation. You're going to have to live by faith and not by sight until what I have written is fully accomplished. And Paul reaches back into the book of Habakkuk and he says, in effect, that this is a paradigm for the Christian life. This has always been the case that those who have life have it only by faith and they continue to walk in that faith. Their lives are driven by it. They're defined by it. And as we think about how Paul drives this thought into our own hearts, I want to kind of land here on just three simple applications for us that have to do with faith in the gospel. Because the gospel is our great promise. The righteousness of God is our great promise, what we have been given. And that affects us in a number of different ways. First of all, faith in the gospel is our great fix. It is our great fix. Faith is the key to a relationship with God. We need our sins and our debts forgiven, and we need perfect obedience that we could never earn on our own. Jesus in the gospel takes our sin and he imputes to us his righteousness. And some of you here today, or maybe watching online, you don't know Jesus Christ. You're not a follower of Jesus Christ. Maybe you've realized today even the depths of your own sin and the hope that can be found in the gospel. Listen, you just need to understand this. You are broken beyond human repair. Sin has devastated you. It has wrecked you. It's wrecked the entire universe. And the only way that any of this is fixed is through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if today you turn to Jesus Christ and you put your faith in him, today in this very moment, if you believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, you can be saved. Spiritually, you can be fixed. You can be healed. You can be brought from death to life. That broken relationship that you have currently with God can be mended and reconciled and restored right now in this very moment. And it is the same gospel that allows us to mend any broken relationship in our life that can restore what is deeply broken on this earth. Come by faith and be fixed. Secondly, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ especially, you need to be reminded that this, that faith in the gospel is our great foundation. It is our great foundation. I love to say this to our church family. We never move past the gospel in the Christian life. We only move deeper into the gospel. Maybe you can think of it like this. We need constantly the gospel to be moving deeper into us. Faith is the foundation upon which our lives are built, as Habakkuk so clearly displays for us. It begins with an absolute reliance upon God, and it continues with an absolute reliance upon God. From faith to faith, or for faith, the righteous shall live by faith. In trouble and in hardship, we struggle, don't we, to trust God, because we don't feel like he's working. We don't see him working. We don't understand what he's doing. In the painful moments of our lives, we are so clouded, we see only what's in front of us, and barely that at times. We are to hold firm to our faith in the promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In trial and hardship, in ease and in plenty, listen, loved ones, the just shall live by faith. We don't put our faith in money. We don't put our faith in possessions. We don't put our faith in reputation. We don't put our faith in in altered circumstances. We don't put our faith in our own ability or our own activity. We don't simply muscle our way through the Christian life. That's not the way it works. It's never worked that way for anybody. We live by faith. 
Everything else we build upon is sinking sand, but the promise of the gospel is a sure and steady foundation. Amen, church? All the promises of God find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. He is the object of our faith, and we trust in him alone. Finally, let me remind you of this, that faith in the gospel is our great future. Like Habakkuk, who looked around him, and the situation looked utterly hopeless, maybe like you and I, who who maybe will face for our faith mock and ridicule and scorn, maybe persecution, maybe even martyrdom in some of our lives. We often look around and, and we ask, we're, we're like Habakkuk, like, God, what's the deal? How long is wickedness and evil going to seemingly triumph on this earth? How long, O oh Lord, when are you going to make this all right? When will we finally see full and complete justice on this earth? The righteous shall live by faith. Listen, listen, loved ones, this is so important to understand. We have not yet seen the fulfillment of all things. We still see sorrow, we still see suffering, we still see sin, and we still see death. We have not yet seen the perfection of our bodies, and we often cry out like Habakkuk, God, when will this all come to an end? When will you make every wrong right? And God says, wait on me. Look at the gospel and believe upon me and trust me. This is not the end of the story. Hallelujah. One day soon, listen, listen, one day soon, Jesus is returning in glory. He has guaranteed through the gospel your future. It is secure in his invincible grip. Eternal life is ours already, but not yet. And like the rest of creation, we are groaning for the return of our Lord and Savior. But as we wait and as we look to what one day will be, the righteous shall live by faith. So let us with Paul declare the theme of this letter as the anthem and theme of our lives. Let us declare, like Paul, that we are not ashamed of the gospel because we see that there is no greater power and there is no greater promise for it and it alone is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then the Gentile. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray. Father in heaven, oh Lord, we confess that so often our faith is so weak. And yet, Father, we know that any faith we have is a gift from you. God, the faith that has saved us is a gift of your grace. And Lord, we rejoice in that, And yet, Lord, at the same time, we pray that your spirit would continue to fill us with faith, would strengthen our faith, Lord, so that we can hear the cry of the scriptures and the cry of the spirit that is within us, that the just will live by faith. Father, we pray for those in this world who are living in unbelief, who are dead in their trespasses and sin. And we pray, God, that you would bring new life by grace through faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to keep our eyes fixed upon you, the author and perfecter of our faith. 
And God, may we be filled with so much joy and passion for Jesus Christ. May you use us, Lord, to declare with the Apostle Paul that we are not ashamed of the gospel, for it and it alone is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. Use us, we pray, to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. Make us bold and courageous, passionate proclaimers of Jesus Christ. We pray this in his powerful name. Amen.